my privilege this morning to introduce to you some special guests. We have Joe and Linda Grana with us. Uh, Joe Grana will be speaking and sharing the word. He is the, the dean at Pacific Christian College of Ministry and Biblical Studies at Hope International University. He, um, uh, when I was an undergrad student, he was actually one of my professors and uh, over the years after, uh, you know, after college, I would still say connected with him. And so he was always somebody, a big influence on my life, making a huge impact year after year after year after year. And as we talk about growing young, I think this is a great example of that. Because um, Dr. Grant is, uh, you know, he's, he's a spring chicken. He, I mean, he's young. He, he's like 70, and, uh, and, and, and I'm not 40 yet. I'm almost 40. And, uh, and so there's 30 years difference. But uh, this is the whole idea of growing young, that you have older people investing in younger people, younger people investing in all people. And it's a beautiful example of the kingdom of God. And as we look to the future, that's what our church is going to continue to do more and more and more of. And it's an exciting picture. It's a... Um, um, it's a vivid picture of the kingdom of God. And, uh, and, and so, so Dr. Grant is here. He's going to be sharing um, today. We're meeting with the elders afterwards. We're going to talk about ideas of what else can we do um, to kind of put into place as we think about the vision for the next five, the next 10 years. And, uh, and part of that is teaming up with Hope International University. One of the things we're going to talk about is residency. Imagine having interns from Hope International University and other universities here team up with our staff members to reach the kingdom. Is that pretty amazing? You got a bunch of college students who love Jesus who are like, yeah. And then we got great staff people here really to, you know, invest in them. It's going to be pretty amazing. So I could say so much more, but let's just welcome Joe Grana. Well, thank you, Brian. It's a pleasure to be here and an honor to be able to come and share. Uh, I've known Brian since uh, he was a senior in high school, so it's, it's been a while. <laughs> kind of got to get back a little bit here. Come on. I don't know who'd start. I think Brian got this thing going. I've been at Hope for 32 years now, so behind my back, they've called me the Pope of Hope. That's right. And uh, the, the main reason I think that's because I'm, I'm the old guy. I'm the oldest faculty member, full-time faculty member at the school. There are some part-time people older, but not full-time people. So um, that's what happens when you've been someplace forever, you know. It's, it, it's been a blessing. It's been great. He's like a son in the faith, and I love him and Kaz and the kids very much, and I'm just honored to be able to come and share with you today, and I, I want to take, take you back a, a little bit in time with me. Uh, oh, by the way, this is my wife, Linda. I mean, he said hi to Linda, but you can wave, and they, they didn't see you. Uh, this is just our third time to Hawaii. The last time was in 99, 1999. Linda got her master's degree then. Our younger daughter got her, graduated from high school, so we came here to celebrate. The first time goes back to 1986, and I kind of want to tell you about that, a little bit of a backstory. Uh, in 84, the Olympics were in Los Angeles, and that was a pretty exciting time. I'm kind of a sports enthousi enthusiast, went to many of the different events there, and uh, it was something where the world was brought together. There was something positive in 1984 about the Olympics that brought the world together. But also what happened is a young man in my church by the name of Mark, he worked at the Olympics, and he raised the flags 
for all the swimming events for the gold medal winners. And uh, he met Margie. Margie uh, also worked behind the scenes, not raising the flags, but helping with what was going on in the Olympics. And she was from Hawaii. And the two of them kind of got together. And so by 1986, uh, they had fallen in love, and they proposed, and they came to Hawaii to have the wedding. And about 20 of us from Downey First Christian Church came here to support them and be here. And I helped do the ceremony at a, another church here in town. Well, it didn't go as well as I would have liked to have gone. Uh, the, the pastor and I, we didn't quite see eye to eye. He kind of changed things, and I kept trying to be gracious. You know, this is your church, and it's their wedding. And, and he said, yeah, it's my church, but they don't have any idea what they want to do at their wedding. And they were pretty smart people. They did know, but it, it wasn't according to his liturgy. He said, now promise me something. You won't preach a sermon in the, the, the ceremony. I said, no, I, I'm fine with that. I'm, I'm reading some scripture and praying. Uh, he also told me not to say anything personal about the, folk, the couple, and I, I didn't quite agree with that. So I, I snuck in something like a two-minute thing. <laughs> You know, it said, like, the world brought together, was brought together in the Olympics, so the Olympics brought Mark and Margie together, and today we're celebrating that union. So that, I took two minutes to say that, okay? So when we get to the reception, uh, there are a couple hundred people there, and I'm going to get my cake, and I'm about in the middle of the reception area. He comes up to me, and he grabs me by the shoulders, and he puts his head down, and he starts shaking his head. He says, Joe, I can't believe you did it. I said, did what? He said, you lied to me. I said, oh, no, all right, he's going to get me on saying something personal. He said, you preached four sermons in that ceremony. I said, what? Preached four sermons? I mean, I read a scripture and talked about it for a minute. I mean, if that's a sermon, I guess so. But I'm thinking like Billy Graham, you know, called, you know, to, let's make a decision for Jesus type of, of thing. And, and so we had different definitions. He went by the book. But I was totally embarrassed. You know, people couldn't hear what he said, but with his hands on my shoulders and his shaking his head like that, I think there's a pretty good clue that something's going wrong here. It's going down somehow. And I was embarrassed in front of all these people, and he turned her family against me. And so I, I just walked out. I didn't even get my cake. Yeah, how about that? That's pretty bad. So I, I walk out, and I just walk around the, the block for about 20 minutes, and I actually just started weeping. I was just so embarrassed, so frustrated, so angry, so many feelings. And so after about 20 minutes, I, I came back in and uh, sat with the people from our church. But uh, I was depressed. I was down. I even questioned some of my uh, ministerial callings. And then the next day, on Sunday, we came to this church. About 15 of the 20 of us came, and we worshiped with you all who were here then, 33 years ago. And we worshiped here, and uh, Harold Gallagher was the pastor of that time and preached a great message, and, and it was a, a real blessing to be here, and, and I felt encouraged. I felt built up, and okay, this, this isn't the end. It's a little bump in the road. It's unfortunate. Uh, when they have the reception in California, I'm not going to go because I don't want to cause any problems for the family, but I've, I've worked through that. Well, the next day on Monday, a uh, number of us went to Hanama Bay to go uh, snorkeling. Well, what I did, I was a little lazy, okay? I got one of those air mattresses, and I, I laid on the air mattress like this, all right? So I had my, my snorkel and everything and the, the goggles, and I'm laying here just kind of going slowly, looking at the fish going by, looking at the beautiful coral, and then as I'm swimming along, 
my wedding ring came off. Uh, oh, here we go. All right. I thought I'd come back up, and now down I went. And I, I didn't know where I was because I'm on this air mattress, and, you know, the waves are taking me back and forth, so I'd, I didn't know where it went. And so I spent about 10, I don't know, 15 minutes looking for it, praying I, I could find it. And, you know, in the coral, I mean, there's nooks and crannies. It, there's no way I'm going to find it. So after about 15 minutes or approximately, I, I quit, and I think, I'm going to go back to shore and tell my wife that I lost my wedding ring, you know. Now, I, I always take my wedding ring off when I swim, whether it's a pool or a lake or the ocean, and I don't know why I didn't do it that day, but I didn't. And so I'm coming back on the shore, and I get back on my air mattress, and I'm, I thought, well, I'll keep looking as I go back towards shore, and I see something shiny on a pretty large piece of coral, and I get down there, and there's my wedding ring. I stand up, I have my snorkel in my mouth, and I say, take care of Jesus, take care of Jesus, take care of Jesus. <laughs> And people are, this guy's lost it, right? He's pretty crazy. But I call that experience my miracle at Hanauma Bay. And so I appreciate this church, and I appreciate that experience where God lifted me up at two times when I was really pretty much down. Next week, we get to celebrate the greatest miracle of all, the death, the burial, but the bodily resurrection of Jesus. There's nothing like it. Nothing like it to raise the spirit. Nothing like it to resurrect the soul. Nothing like it that could make a difference in this life and for the eternal life. But to get to the resurrection, we have to move back a little bit, and we come today, Palm Sunday. But I want to give you a backstory, just like I gave you a little bit of backstory to get to my miracle, Hanama Bay. I'm going to take you back a week before Palm Sunday to kind of set the scene for us. There was another parade that took place the week before Palm Sunday, and it involved this man, Pontius Pilate, governor over Israel from 26 to 36. He's going to be coming into Jerusalem as well from the Mediterranean Sea, from a town called Caesarea, from the west side of Jerusalem. And as he does so, he is going to be riding his white horse. A white horse is a symbol, military symbol of power and of war. And he is coming in in the power of Rome because Rome is in control of Israel at the time. And he's going to make sure that the Jewish people don't question that, that they know it. In fact, he's going to bring with him hundreds and hundreds of soldiers as well. They would march into Israel, there would be, I mean, into Jerusalem. There would be this great display. They would come in, they would stay in the barracks, which were at the Antonio Towers, which was named after Mark Anthony. And they're right there by the temple, so they would have guards that are looking over the temple area. Because you see, there'd be about 100,000 people come into Jerusalem for the Passover feast, and the, the Roman people were concerned about that. Not so much about the religious ceremony. They were religious. They believed in many gods. In fact, it's interesting to me that the Romans of the first century thought that Jewish people and the early Christians were atheists. They called them atheists. And the reason they call them atheists is because they didn't believe in all the Roman gods. I, I have a friend who's an atheist. He said, you know, Joe, you already don't believe in millions of gods. I just don't want you to believe in one more. <laughs> but here, they thought they were atheists because they only believed in one god and didn't believe in all the Roman gods. So they, they were okay with the religious ceremony. What they were concerned about is that all these Jewish people coming from around the known world of that time, that they might want to start an uprising. 100,000 people, a group of them might want to 
fight against them. And so they're making sure and they're watching into the temple area that if there's a group of people gathering for too long, they're going to come down from those towers and they're going to break that up because they're not going to let anything start going. So he comes into Jerusalem with the intent to show their power. They're in control. Do your religious ceremony. We don't care. But don't think about any kind of political uprising. Now I want to give you, so I want you to see this, that Pilate enters Jerusalem from the west, from the city of Caesarea, on a white horse, and with his military power, his trained soldiers. We're going to read a text in a little while where it's going to say that they went up to Jerusalem. But you notice here, they will be coming southeast. (laughs) I don't know if you do this here on the island or not, but you know on the mainland, you go up north and down south. You know what I'm talking about? There, they didn't think of it that way. You've got to wear your yarmulke when you read the, the, the New Testament. You've got to think like a Jewish person. They didn't think of north and south that way. They meant literally up and down. So Jerusalem is up on a mountain, not a high mountain. It's only about 3,000 feet. But you would go up southeast. And you might go down north from Jerusalem because you're going up the hill and down the hill. So it's just a little geography lesson uh, in, in the text. There's a little subtlety that's there. I want to tell you just a little bit about Caesarea before we get into our text of where Pilate lived. It's there on the Mediterranean Sea. You can see the Jerusalem perhaps uh, down to, to, the, to the right. And Caesarea is a very modern city. Pilate has a mansion on the sea. He has a swimming pool. In the swimming pool, he has water that's been brought in from the Mediterranean Sea. From his palace, he can see the hippodrome, the racetrack that they would go visit. On the other side of his palace, he could see a theater, a theater that's constructed in such a way for thousands of people, and someone could be on the stage, and they can whisper, and people in the very back can hear. It's brilliant. They took the atmospheric pressure of the Mediterranean Sea and the air, and they, they, they utilized that so that people on stage could be heard without having to shout, just with the way it flowed. They also had running water. They had a, a, an aqueduct that came from Mount Hermon down into the city, and they piped the water into people's houses. They even had flush toilets, though they didn't flush them like we do uh, whenever we go to the restroom, but rather they utilized the tides of the Mediterranean Sea. So twice a day, they had the piping in such a way so that when there was a high tide, it would come into their restroom, and then when there was a low tide, it would take the waste out. So twice a day, their toilets would get flushed. It was a very modern city. It was a brilliant way that these people had put it together. It was the right place for a Roman governor to live in luxury and in power in the town called Caesarea, which is obviously named after Caesar. One other thing I want to mention before we get to our text is our text is going to deal with something that's very, very powerful it's a powerful emotion that Jesus is going to have, and it's a, it's a negative emotion. It's a very difficult part of the text. And I want to balance that off with another view of Jesus as well, is that Jesus liked to laugh. He, he enjoyed life. In fact, they, they called him a party animal. He said he's a drunkard. You know, He's hanging out with publicans and sinners. He was out enjoying life, and when he taught, he had some humor. Now, one of the problems we have in reading the Bible is that we're not expecting it to be funny. But there are a lot of funny places in the Bible if you will open your mind accordingly and read it that way. And many of the teachings of Jesus are good humor. The problem is we're not first century Jews, and so therefore we don't get it. 
Let me just give you a little example. Uh, you've seen it as a teaching thing, but maybe not seen the humor behind it, where Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the Jewish mindset would have seen that as being very funny. They said, just, just think about it. And it is funny. A camel trying to go through the eye of a needle? I mean, it's this ridiculous hyperbole, a ridiculous exaggeration. And the Jewish people of the first century would have been laughing at that illustration. And they would say, hey, that's a good one, Jesus. Tell us another one. And, and he does, often in his stories, tell some great, funny things like that. So with, with that as the background, I want us to look at our text. It's a Palm Sunday text. It's in Luke, the 19th chapter. And we're going to begin at verse 28, if you have your Bibles or your phones or whatever it is you might use. Luke 19, verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went ahead going up to Jerusalem. And as he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked him, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came to the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. The word that's used here for weep means that he was sobbing. He was wailing. He was heaving. It's the same word that's used of Peter later on in Luke. You remember when Peter denies the Lord three times and then the cock crows and it says he went out and wept bitterly? It's the same word where there's great distress and, 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 and sadness and, and, and heaving and sobbing. So Jesus is sobbing over the city of Jerusalem as he comes in this victory march. So what does he say about that? He says, if you had, you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. It's a dramatic scene. It's an incredible scene, and here we find Jesus coming into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey. Now, a donkey was a, a royal animal at the time, and so it wasn't unusual for kings to ride donkeys, but that was a symbol of peace, not of war. When he comes in, he doesn't have a lot of trained soldiers. He has a ragtag bunch of people we call the disciples or the apostles. And I want you to think about the apostles for a moment, because when I use the word apostle, you probably think of an old guy like me with gray hair, right? But I want you to know that's not true in regard to the apostles at this time. 
Jesus is 30-something at this moment. The apostles are 20-something. Most scholars believe that the apostle John was 18 or 19 when the gospel stories start, and now when they get to this story, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, he's 21, 22. These are young men that he's trying to develop, not well-trained soldiers like Pilate had. It's a ragtag group. John, James, known as the Sons of Thunder, because they're hot-headed young men. But when John becomes an old man, about 100 years old, it says that he became the apostle of love. And that when he was so old, he couldn't walk into the assembly of the church. The young men would carry him, carry him in, and they would, he would put his hands on each person in the whole church, and he'd say, love one another, love one another, love one another. And so these apostles are young men that he's training. But I want, again, as being young men, what happens when you have 13 young guys to get together? right? There, there's joking, there's wrestling, there's punching, there's bodily noises emitted. There, there's all kinds of things that are going on. And I'd like for you to think that, why would it be any different than Jesus and the apostles? You know, these, these guys don't have halos over their head. They're not always having their hands folded in prayer. They, they love life, they enjoy life, and they do life, and they have some rough edges on them. There's some difficulties with some of the people within this group, but yet they become the people that Jesus entrust the kingdom to. And through their faithfulness, it's been passed on through the, the generations. So Jesus enters Jerusalem from the east side on a donkey. Get this contrast. Pilate comes in from the west side on a war horse with his trained soldiers. Jesus comes from the east side on a donkey with his apostles he's trying to change. There's a great contrast of what's going on between the power of Rome and the power of the kingdom of Jesus. And I, I might put in a note. <laughs> Pilate left in 36 AD because he got in trouble. He's going back to, to Rome and the emperor dies unfortunately on the way and uh, he dies within about three years. The Roman Empire eventually dissolved as well. They're in power and they're in control, but Jesus' kingdom has continued to grow. Because even though Jesus did die, he resurrected from the dead. And because of that, he leads his church forward as well. Yeah. It's a powerful contrast of what's going on. But there's something that Jesus does on the way in here that I've mentioned that he, he cries. And I've talked about that word, but I want again for you to imagine this. They're laying down their cloaks. They're laying down the palm leaves. And in the process of that, it's, it's a victorious march. In fact, this morning in Jerusalem, which was several hours ago now because of the time difference, they reenacted this. And there were thousands and thousands of Christians in Jerusalem having a Palm Sunday experience. In fact, they do it in some of the small villages. It was about eight years ago, I was preaching in Tehran, uh, Israel on Palm Sunday. Tehran is just north of Israel, uh, north of Nazareth in Israel. And uh, it's a city that is three-fourths Muslim and one-fourth uh, Christian. And uh, after, at the end of the service, uh, we walked out the back door and a parade had started down the street in the Christian quarter. There was a band playing. There were people with their palm leaves. Uh, young people were dressed in like uh, Boy Scout, Girl Scout uniforms. Uh, and we joined the procession and walked through the city of Tehran reenacting the, this Palm Sunday experience. 
It was a time of rejoicing. And if this was a time of rejoicing, people are laying down their palm leaves. It's like laying down the red carpet for a dignitary or a celebrity. That's what Jesus was. In fact, they sing out, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. That is Psalm 118, verse 26. It's two verses later than a, a, a chorus that we used to sing. Do you remember that song? This is the day, this is the day. That's Psalm 118, 24. They would have just sung that before they sang this verse, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. The king has come. The king not only is coming, he is here. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So we have this ticker tape parade, a victory march, and he breaks down and cries. Isn't that a little odd? You have some sports team that wins some great event and they have some great celebration for it. You wouldn't think that you know, like with the Super Bowl, I don't know if you follow football that much or not, but Super Bowl, these big burly guys are going to break down and cry when they have this big tape, ticker tape parade. Well, maybe if they're filled with joy, but not of the sadness that I talked about. Jesus filled with sadness. And his sadness is there because of this. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I wish I could gather you together as a hen does its brood, but you would not. You did not recognize the day of your visitation and your enemies are going to come in and they're surround you and hem you in and dash you and your children to the ground and not one stone's going to be left on another. By 66 AD, the Romans are really ticked off of the Jews. And by 70 AD, they come into Jerusalem and they obliterate it. They destroy it. They cut down every tree. They knock down every building. They destroy the temple that took 46 years to build, and they broke down all the walls except for this one section. I'm going to come back to that. This section of the, what we call the Wailing Wall or the uh, Western Wall, about a, a fourth of the way up, those are the original stones from the time of Jesus. The rest of those were built in the 12th and the 16th century. Jewish people will go there today, and the reason they call it Wailing Wall, because they will cry over the destruction of Jerusalem in the past, and they will put prayers into the wall and then ask for Jerusalem to be able to remain uh, forever. Jesus sees that the city is going to be destroyed, obliterated. Josephus, a Jewish historian, says that 1.1 million people were killed in the siege. Now, most scholars think that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but it's still hundreds of thousands of people, all of Honolulu being destroyed. Every person, every tree, every building knocked down. I mean, it's a, it's a devastating, incredible event that took place. And Jesus saw it coming. You can put the slide back. I want to go back to this other part. As we look at Jesus weeping, it's very interesting to me only three times in the New Testament does Jesus cry. The first time is uh, over his friend Lazarus. Remember, he's at Lazarus' tomb, and he says, Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the New Testament. I always thought it was the shortest verse in the Bible, but it's not. And I, I guess I must said this in the first service. Not Jeremiah 3.2, it's Job 3.2. So tell people in the first service I, I said that wrong. Right? <clears throat> okay. The shortest verse in the Bible is Job 3.2. It states, he said. <laughs> I don't know why that's a verse. I, I think the guy was drunk when he did it. You know? I, but the shortest verse in the New Testament is John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. And in contrast to this wailing word of, of our passage, 
There it meant a silent tear came down his cheek. We also have the third incidence where Jesus in Hebrews 5, 7 says, with loud cries and tears, he wept and he was heard for his godly, uh, godly fear. I think this is interesting. Three times Jesus weeps. He weeps over a friend, over a city, and over a world. I think that becomes a great example of the concerns that we ought to have over our friends, over the city that we live in, and over our world, to have a concern for the brokenness that is there. But you see, there's something hopeful, because not only will unbelief destroy the city, but belief can restore the city as well. That when people come to belief in Jesus, their lives which have been broken and been destroyed and been torn apart for whatever reason it is, can be rebuilt and restored and strengthened again. Of a city that is, down, is torn down by corruption and crime and, and division of, of people's relationships, it can be rebuilt again through faith. The church has an answer to what we need within this world. And for a world that is a so crazy, that is so complex and so divided. What people need today is to know the Prince of Peace who can make all the difference in the world. Because you see, the resurrection of Jesus has the potential to change everything. Now, it does change everything, but the reason I say potential to change everything is because it depends whether you let the resurrection make a difference in your life, whether we allow the resurrection to make a difference in our city, if we allow the resurrection to make a difference in our world, but it has the potential to change everything in this life and in the life to come. Our text ends with Jesus going into the temple and overthrowing it. Pretty violent. Our passive, easygoing, loving Jesus isn't so much in the temple because he said, my house should be a house of prayer. You've made it into a den of robbers. You see, the people were, were robbing people. They, the money changers should be there to change money. The people who sold the animals, it was okay for them to be there. But they were gouging people. They, they were business people who were taking advantage of other people because of their situation, because they had traveled in from out of town, and they took advantage of that. You see, Jesus said, my house should be a house of prayer. And just on the outside of this worship center, it says, this is to be a house of prayer. So here, here's my encouragement to you on this Palm Sunday. On the one hand, as a church, let's be a house of prayer. Let us worship God and, and honor him together with the, the synergy that happens by being with other people in faith. But I would encourage you to pray for Pastor Brian and for the rest of the staff and for the elders of the church, that they might lead the church to the next place that this church is going, that we might be a people of prayer for the leadership. I would ask you to be in prayer yourself as to how you can contribute, how God has gifted and called you, and what you can do in that process as well. But then I also encourage you this week, if you would just remember this week each day, to pray for a friend, somebody that you know, a family member, a friend who is outside of Christ, who needs Jesus, who needs their life to be put back together. And every day this week before Resurrection Sunday, pray for that person that God might stir in their heart. Maybe you'll be able to talk to them. Maybe you'll be able to invite them. I don't know if you can. That would be great. But please pray for that person. Pray for the city. Pray for the government leaders. Pray for the, the first responders. 
Pray for the business people here. Pray for the teachers. Pray that God would be able to work through the institutions, even within the city, to make a difference in people's lives, to build up one another. And then pray this week for our world. Our world is broken. It's destroying itself because of unbelief. But now the world, for a week anyway, turns its attention to Jerusalem, to the story of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Let's take advantage of that and, and pray that God would work throughout the world to make a difference because the resurrection has the potential to change everything. Let us pray. Dear Jesus, thank you that we could come, we could worship you. Thank you for the victory march that you gave and the heart that you showed for the city of Jerusalem. But thank you most of all for your death, burial, and resurrection, that you died on the cross for our sins, that you've paid the price for us, you resurrected to be victorious over death and over evil. Help us as people of faith to be people of prayer and to be able to live in the victory that you've given us and you've already won. Bless this church and all of its ministry. Bless the school here. Bless the outreach, even throughout the world, that it might make a difference and change everything because of what you've done. I pray this in your precious name. Amen.